Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to part two. You're probably getting used to me saying that by now. We are back on the Napoleonic Wars pod and we are continuing with the Copenhagen Conundrum. Yes, I'm still attempting the alliterative titles. Feel free to groan. Um, But if you want to write in and complain, don't expect me to listen. Um, It's probably not a good point for me to remind you to like, subscribe and review on your favourite podcasting channel. Um, But Nonetheless, feel free to to do so. It all helps with the algorithm. But we are back today with Gareth Glover, who I am going to spare the embarrassment of an exalted introduction, other than to say, if you don't have some of his books in your library, I am judging you and you need to rectify it. The guy has written so many important titles that you, you just need to look at his website and pick some things for Christmas, people, because Santa needs to improve your reading. Um, Gareth, just remind people of your, is it garethglover.com or .co.uk? Um, sorry, you, you know, the website. Yes, please. It's the garethglovercollection.com. Okay, there you go, so it's, folks. So it's not the, sorry, not the, it's just garethglovercollection.com. So there you go, folks. That's where you need to be going in order to plan your Christmas list. Um, Gareth, ordinarily, I would ask how you're doing, but we literally stopped recording like 120 seconds ago. So I'm guessing you haven't come down with a horrendous ailment in the last two minutes. Thankfully, no. No. Well, that that's good to hear. Um, we're going to dive straight back into this. So, folks, if you haven't listened to part one, please do, because there's a whole stack of context that you will have missed. And we got as far as basically trying to work out why, well, work out Gareth knows and, and I don't why why make the decision on firebombing was there any other way um to which the answer effectively seems to be well no not really um there is one question that i left out of the the first half though which was about precedent has this been done before is there a playbook on how to make this happen 
or are they just kind of uh, and also in terms of like the, the moral implications of this are people able to point to something to just sort of ease their concerns or is this very much a sort of step in the dark you've got to look back through history um this actually almost comes down to so the, the the rules of chivalry uh which uh, there's even a question mark if they ever even existed but at the end of the day supposedly everyone was trying to follow the rules of chivalry and when you got to the situation of you were uh, uh sorry you were going to try to take a city um throughout the medieval period it had been quite normal to do whatever you liked in the way of throwing things in there, sort of uh, dead bodies uh, to sort of start diseases. Hopefully they had the plague, which was even better. Uh, you know, sort of you would you, you try and you know to, to firebomb the place. I mean, even in those days, they were actually using incendiaries in in any way they possibly could, and you know, starving them, uh, trying to cut the water supplies, everything to make life as impossible as possible for those inside and knowing that huge numbers of not just combatants within the fortress but those whose poor civilians who are stuck in there as well will suffer in many different ways and large numbers will die um now we then come into the 17th century etc and there's there starts to become a little bit more of a a, a, a tacit agreement uh, on a number of things and one of them of them is that once you've actually formed a breach in the walls of the actual fortress then you have you you should actually surrender you shouldn't put the actual uh, attacking force through that terrible storm that has to happen otherwise where huge numbers of the attackers get killed uh, who will then eventually obviously almost certainly succeed having formed the breaches and then we'll go out to control and cause problems within the city huge problems you know death destruction raping whatever uh, is you know and unfortunately um that that has started to happen uh but then by the time of the napoleonic wars napoleon specifically had actually started ordering his garrison commanders and his governors of these places that you know even after the first breach you don't surrender you have to actually at least defeat the first storm uh and then of course that means that you are getting into the situation where uh as exactly happened in spain and portugal is that you know uh, sierra rodrigo and badajoz etc san sebastian uh, where once the attackers get in, they are so riled up uh, and having seen so many of their friends maimed, ripped apart and sort of killed, etc., that all sense of decency, and I'm not defending it, I'm just explaining what seems to happen, is all form of decency fails and uh, all social norms just disintegrate uh they get drunk and then they just literally uh take their revenge on whoever they can actually come across whether they're civilian or an actual soldier or anything else actually quite often in fact it's actually strange but in fact the soldier in uniform is often still treated okay it's the civilians that get the worst of it completely um so it's almost like the false 
honor situation still working. Um, so all of that has happened in the past and therefore, uh, you know, sort of launching uh, weaponry against the city is has, has been known since, you know, before the Romans, everybody's been doing it. And it's a normal thing to do. It's it's so it isn't strange or unusual to do it on this occasion. Perhaps what is less obvious is 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 probably the reasons why it's happening, and that's and that's why it gets a bit of a strange sort of uh, sort of viewing. Is that uh, it? It depends if you actually understand why the British army and navy are there to take the fleet then you can possibly understand why they're doing this to actually achieve their goal. If you don't understand that because they're attacking a neutral country, you're never going to understand the fact that they've actually now raining fire and brimstone onto the city. Uh, you know, and those two views are never going to really come together. Although I've done my best to try to bring that together, but you know, you, you know, you understand that there clearly are two sides to this and there probably always will be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can completely understand people looking at this from a moral standpoint and going, that is awful. If you actually take yourself outside of it and look at the strategic side of things, you can mm. you can reach a point where you go, that is absolutely horrendous. That is really quite shameful. But I can also understand why they made those judgment calls. And I think that's probably what that's probably where I've reached with this um, mm. others are welcome to disagree they might kind of turn around and take the machiavellian approach um i am quite machiavellian but I, I do kind of look at this and go this is not britain's finest hour um others are welcome to disagree that's the whole process of writing history um the the other thing i wanted to ask about this uh, sorry just before we get on to that one thing i mm. want to say to our listeners um 1812 why do you think we burned down the white house we're not angels. Um, we, sometimes we do these things. So there are pockets of this throughout the period, albeit, as Gareth's alluded to, um, Theodore Rodrigo, Badajoz, San Sebastian, 1812-1813. Um, burning of the White House is War of 1812. I forget which year. Apologies, folks. It's it's not my fault. 1814, I think. Yes, it is 1814. Uh, but you have to you have to put it on the other side, the coin, Zach. If you're going to mention that, you have to say that don't forget the Americans had already been to the capital of Canada, which was then York, and actually burnt that down previously. So it was an act. Of, it was a deliberate act of retaliation. Indeed, indeed. Um, so, look, it's messy during this period. They might have, you know, positioned themselves as gentlemen, but it's it's war. People, horrendous things happen. The important thing is to make sure that we don't just brush the horrendous things under the carpet and go, oh well, ain't that a shame? Hence episodes like this. So in amongst all of that, you've obviously got the civilians who are the ones who are perhaps most deserving of sympathy, pity, call it what you will. Yeah. Now in Spain, um, and particularly within the context of Badajoz, I'm not so sure about Theodore Rodrigo, but I suspect in relation to Theodore Rodrigo, certainly in relation to San Sebastian, there are evacuations. People have the option to leave. Yep. Or they actually get kicked out because anybody who's inside the defences is a mouth to feed. And yes. you don't particularly want large numbers of mouths to feed when you're about to be cut off from your supply lines. So is there an equivalent that then helps to scale down the civilian casualties? Yeah. 
there are some evacuations, uh, but it's not in huge numbers of the civilian population. Uh, what it is, is the remaining members of the royal family, the nobility of Copenhagen, and the diplomats and head heads of the government who don't fancy having fire rained on them actually move out of the city, leaving the, the rest of the poor inhabitants to their own. Other which me I, <laughs> yeah it's it's not their greatest moment no it's not okay um so the poor people are left to die and burn literally yeah um and and the the rich guys get out um yeah not not their finest hour as you say no. um let's start to talk about the operations themselves mm -hmm. We mentioned in the last show, fan favourite Wellesley is involved with this um, operation. He has that moment of what I would class very dubious glory at the Battle of Koga. I've probably mispronounced that horribly. I, I, but I believe, uh, and if there's any Danish people, please correct me, but I think it may be Koja. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I'll go. I've heard, because... a I've heard a number of different versions of it, so it is difficult. I will go with your pronunciation because you're better placed to know than me. Um, now, there are plenty of comments that could be made with relation to this about the fact that Danish troops still have their clogs on in some cases. Talk mm -hmm. us through how we get to Koja, um, why we're there, the, the quality of the force, um, and then perhaps we'll kind of deal with the, what actually happens at a, a tactical level in, in due course. Yeah, fine. Um, basically, um... Obviously, you've got the British army facing Copenhagen, really, encircling as much of it as they can on Zealand to actually uh, stop any uh, sort of supplies getting in, etc. Um, and preparing to actually bombard um, if necessary. Now, while it was going on, as I said, Cathcart was constantly concerned that troops could appear in his rear. Um, and in fact, uh, he starts getting rumours that a Danish force is approaching across Zealand towards him. Um, now, the numbers he gets given are around about five to six thousand, and it is quite clear that uh, that his understanding is that they are probably not the best of troops. They're actually going to be local. As far as I'm aware, most of them are known as Landvein, which is like a, a reserve force, uh, which is meant to be that they are ex-soldiers rather than just being a militia that's just sort of picked from the local farmyard, farms. However, the description that comes out would, would actually seem to uh, say that the British who saw the, some of these soldiers actually would they don't sound like old veterans they actually sound a lot more like farmhands that have been dragged in so there there is some sort of question mark over how how much of a, a force of land they were they were officially land but how much they were really old reservists type thing um but anyway having heard that this force is moving into his rear clearly it is a, con a concern he needs to do something about it so he reorganizes his uh, lines 
just outside Copenhagen. And uh, Wellesley is already in command of uh, a force called the Reserve. And he turns to Wellesley and effectively says, right, put a plan together of how you're going to effectively uh, face up to this threat that's coming in from the, in the, in the rear. Uh, and Wellesley immediately marches his men towards Roskilde, which is where he is the last uh, uh, mention there has been of them. Um, Wellesley's actually given some, uh, he, he's actually got some regiments that people might know quite well. Um, he's got the 95th. He's got the 52nd and the 43rd. Now, this is not a light brigade, but, you know, you know, this is effectively what we're talking about. 92nd Highlanders with them as well. Uh, there was a 6th KGL and there were some KGL Hussars. That was his cavalry, uh, plus a couple of uh, batteries of artillery as well. So Wellesley moves towards, um, as I said, towards um, Roskilde. Uh, he, there, he there finds that, in fact, this force has heard that there is something coming towards them and has moved to Koja. Uh, and Wellesley therefore aims to attack at Koja, but he does it with two forces. And we'll talk about that in a minute if you want to. But so, um, he is going towards a force that is in his understanding of a relatively equal size. But and he doesn't know the quality. Uh, so, you know, he doesn't know what he's coming to. But there is. Certainly, if they've had rumours of the troops being on the island already, it's almost certainly they knew they were militia, slant, land, vein. But clearly, they haven't faced any of them in the field and don't know totally what they're going to see. But he's, he, he has to know that he's up against a force of, of a similar size to himself. Okay, doke. Um So, Wellesley kind of heading into um, this, you can understand why. Um, the, the Danish are, aren't too keen to um, head headlong into one of these engagements. Um, I guess the, the simple thing is sort of talk us through what happens. What's the plan? What happens in reality? Well, the, I'll start off with the fact that Wellesley actually feels confident enough to actually split his force in half uh, into two pieces, uh, which would indicate that he maybe has some inkling of the qualities up against the, the, their militia, etc. Um, he has the idea that um, he will march direct on Ros on um, Kojo, it's Kojo itself, uh, while half his force and Linsingen, who is actually a German uh, in, within the British Army, will actually take the other half uh, and basically pass round to the north, across a, a bridge further to the north, with the intention of falling into the, their rear, uh, with the, obviously the intention of cutting off the entire force. But as I said, although it's never mentioned anywhere, to, to actually plan to do something like that would indicate that he thinks his 3,000 men in front of 6,000 is actually going to be perfectly adequate and is not going to be under threat, you know, because otherwise you wouldn't split force like that, would you? You wouldn't. And, and there are sort of, you hear echoes of that actually with Relisa, don't you? Uh, or Relisa, uh, apologies, yes. folks, in the, you know, Wellington has the confidence there to go for the pincer movement, and that inevitably means a degree of a split. Um, 
so it, it does say something about Wellesley's confidence going into this. Um, how did the Danes respond? Well, the Danish uh, really weren't very good at manoeuvring, etc. So, uh, and they were re- relatively ill-trained t- troops. So they set up a position just to the north of Koja. Um, there is some mention of, of being just behind a stream. So uh, some some mention a stream, although I can't find one on the map now. So whether, uh, but that area has been messed around with a lot, and a lot of things have been piped underground, etc. Now, so it's quite possible it's it's gone under the town. Uh, which is hugely bigger now. Um, but <clears throat> they basically put their cannon out front, actually sort of had their troops lined up behind it with the intention of they would just sort of hold their ground and let the, the British advance, basically, uh, and defeat them as they come forward. Uh, they obviously start firing their cannon uh, and a few of the 92nd get hit, etc. cetera. Uh, and quite quickly, uh, the 92nd and the 95th get ordered forward in to advance basically and to sort of start bring them under fire and as soon as they do the danish defense really starts to collapse um and it's not long before the entire force has decided the the best thing to do is to run away and save themselves um which requires them then to actually run through the narrow streets of the village uh back over the single bridge over the river behind them which which doesn't seem to have actually uh, sort of occurred to them as being a problem uh, where they had a reserve holding that bridge so there was a reserve to ensure that the bridge stayed in their hands but clearly you you have to obviously get them all back across the bridge and in fact when the actual 92nd arrived there they do actually also capture a cannon actually on the bridge so they've actually put a cannon there to try to actually stop the British coming up and crossing it uh, but as you said, one of the things you said earlier is it's it's known to many as the the Battle of the Clogs, because clearly if you're trying to run away in a situation like that, wooden clogs does not help your ability to move uh, any either at all. So most of them just literally discarded them rapidly and ran barefoot down the road and across the across the um, the bridge. Uh, having got across the bridge, they thought they were okay because, of course. Linsingen's turning movement. Uh, this is so I should say this has all happened a little bit early because Wellington didn't want this to happen until Linsingen had actually got his force around the back at the bridge area, uh, which would have then meant they were all captured. Linsingen unfortunately arrived to find the bridge he was going to cross had been severely damaged and he couldn't get the men across quickly enough. So, and the 92nd, etc., were sent forward a little bit quicker than I, I think it was all intended. So it's it all and certainly I don't think Wellington expected it to collapse as fast as it did. Um so he as they then retreat, uh Lincoln's force then comes round, which of course includes most of the cavalry, uh, and they start to actually chase the remains of this uh, force away. But I did say there was a reverse a, a reserve force at the bridge and they've uh the four battalions there managed to stay formed and drop back to a village, um, which I've got to remind myself, I can never remember the name, Hefulga. I have been there actually a long time ago, no, uh, where there's a church on a hill and they actually used, and that's got a wall around it, and they actually use that as a final defence position. And, and it, uh, one battalion actually holds that to try and hold the British back while the rest escape. 
But basically, the cavalry are then sent off across Zealand, um, chasing down these sort of um, um, these running these dangers they run away, uh, hacking down many of them, capturing some. Uh, but the majority of those captured were actually at Hefolge, at the um, at the the church, uh, where General Oxholm, who is actually commanding the whole thing, is actually captured, and about fourteen hundred men as well. Um, so, so of the force, about a, a quarter actually are captured, another few hundred are killed. Uh, we don't know how many more got killed afterwards in the chase across the countryside. I mean, potentially lots more, but there's no need to record it, so, uh, so we don't know. Um, and that brought the the action to a, a, a an end, should we say? Sounds like a pretty uneven, one sided uh, engagement with a sort of an air of inevitability about it. Oh, absolutely! It? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, the Danes had really no chance at all. Um, they they were not prepared for the sort of, sort of troops, you know, the, the experienced troops they came across. Um, you know, it it is almost celebrated as Wellesley's first European victory. Yeah, he's, he's known as the you know as a sepoy general before this, and you know he needs a a European victory. Um, but even he is relatively quiet about this one. He doesn't exactly shout it from the treetops. You know, some of his some of those who write about him later talk about it as this great, you know, his first European victory. But he is quite mute on the subject, if I'm honest. Uh, and to be honest, when you when you then read the few accounts we have of uh, what the prisoners looked like, etc., from the British officers, there is almost an embarrassment in that, you know, the, the fact that they've had to face such inadequate forces yeah and uh, and they they literally do describe them as farmhands who look like they've been given a musket literally the day before and have really no idea what they're doing with it you just preempted what was going to be my next question so nice work um you're getting <laughs> used to to how i operate clearly um yeah the, I, I was curious about whether or not wellesley sort of tries to sort of talk it up um, he does that on occasion, Alwera being the, the most famous yeah. example of that. Um, but clearly he sort of takes one look at what happens at Kozier and just sort of decides, yeah, I've, I've done a job, but, you know, there's, there's yeah. not a huge amount to celebrate. Yeah. Is that the mood within camp and within the government when news gets back? Do they sort of have an awareness that this really isn't much? It's just... No, I mean, the, the, you have to bear in mind, he has to uh, give in a an official um, sort of report on the battle, uh, which he sends to Cathcart, and so does Linsingen, who, uh, as well. And clearly within that, they do describe having defeated this number of men and all the rest of it. But it's, he is not um, shouting in great, you know, sort of, uh, sort of, praise were you know sort of asking for praise for how well his his troops have acted and how well he's general he's acted as a general it's it's i i think reading it is quite muted it's it's very matter of fact uh it just gives the the information of i i tend to look more at how he acted around others afterwards and the few comments we get about him at the time is that it really is not mentioned by him at all. He's certainly not going around sort of looking for laurels on the back of it. 
that I mean, there are plenty of people that we come across in life who would absolutely want a medal for for what happened there, but um, clearly Wellesley, not one of them. On exactly uh, yes. on reflection, um, let's just pause and consider time scale in all of this, which is obviously important. So, where does Koja fit in with the the arrival in in terms of that time scale, and at what point does the bombardment actually begin? Right. Well, we're we're, we're now sort of mid-August, if I remember, off the top of my head. Um, and the bombardment's not really up until early September. So we're talking the 2nd to the 5th of September. So we're talking, uh, they've been ashore a couple of weeks and they've got another couple of weeks before they actually get to actually bombard. So, you know, August is largely spent in preparing the whole operation. It's Because it's, it's a huge operation to get all these guns ashore into, you know, into position and sort of ready to fire. So it's, it's it is massive, but yeah, it's it's halfway between, really, in a sense. And what sort of preparation are the Danes doing? Because you mentioned you've got an engineer as governor in charge of everything. Yeah, I, I mean, these guys aren't dumb. They must have looked at the various options available to the British and decided that they're they're either going to come over the walls, or yeah. you know, they're not. And if they're not, then they're going to bombard. So, is there a sense of preparation? In, in terms yeah, of- there definitely is. And, and I've managed to find a few um, sort of posters of the period as well, actually, which they were they were giving out sort of like um, sort of public announcements, you know, sort of, nice. you know, you know, whereas you get the sort of the wartime stuff, you know, sort of Second World War, we think, this, you know, but he was doing it then. Um, they were putting out things like, um, you know, ex- expecting sort of shells to land in places so so almost how to how to deal with a a, a shell landing in your house uh you know sort of having buckets of water on each landing ready to go type thing so you can douse the shell and if it hasn't exploded you might be able to put it out before it goes out you know it goes off um and lots of things like that or how to actually protect your family by taking them further down into the into the house or whatever into the cellar etc so i mean it is relatively basic stuff but we are at a time where we're talking about you know sort of there is there is our thoughts about how they can do things there's even things like i mean because the majority of the water supply for the city came from the reservoirs outside now of course they got cut pretty damn quickly but they actually did a survey of all the wells in the city and they found hundreds of wells. So they were able to say, in fact, actually, if we use all these wells and organize teams of people to be constantly uh, drawing from the wells, we've got plenty of water. We're not going to actually run out of water. Um, so there was a there were lots of yeah, a lot of preparations. And as I said, you know, certainly the Navy were well aware that there was a very good chance that they may be shelled in an attempt to destroy them or something like that. So, as I said, they were already working on things like sort of covering the decks to try to stop the shells, setting things afire, etc., and taking down the masts and the sails, etc. So that so that you're and and even soaking the decks, etc., anything at all to try and stop that sort of incident happening. So, yeah, in all areas they were and. You know they were trying to get organized certainly the defenses were organized they they had you know each air each regiment that was in the in the actual thing was given a specific bastion or a couple of bastions to actually keep and all the rest of it and until the last um so everything possible was done um but clearly and and they had a reasonable amount of time but you know the biggest problem for them was that they they could only rely on what they already had within the city 
Yeah, there was no ability to bring more in. Uh, and one incident, funny enough, which we haven't actually mentioned, but earlier on uh, in the early days, uh, we have the main um, stores for uh, production of um, uh, gunpowder and for actually some of the heavy guns, etc., were up in the north in Fredericksburg. And two convoys actually tried to get into the city, but both were were turned away by German cavalry and chased back to Fredericksburg. And um, when they got when the cavalry got to Fredericksburg, um, the battalion of Danish troops that were actually defending Fredericksburg actually were there in square waiting just to face them and were so frightened by the couple of uh, squadrons of actual King's German Legion uh, cavalrymen sort of waving their sabres around a, a lot. Uh, a bit like uh, the new saber I see that a certain person we're talking to has actually just bought. They, they did indeed inquire a, a 1796. Yes. Um, and um, they promptly um, surrendered. And so therefore um, the British got all of the actual gunpowder, all of those heavy guns that should have been in the city. Um, and obviously uh, they were kept away from them. The the odd bit, I, which I, the little extra bit to the story I, I love in a sense is this is very much a, a case of um, troops following the rules, should we say. So because the British, uh, there were no infantry around, there was literally these a couple of squadrons of German cavalry and they're thinking, well, well, we can't stay up here. We've got a job to do elsewhere. So they turned to the Danes and said, right, you are under parole, uh, uh, but we can't obviously, you, you know, we can't take you anywhere at the moment. We will leave you in charge of all of this stuff here, but you are now under obligation not to supply any of it to the Danish army. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, they stayed there. They they happily stayed in Fredericksburg away from the fighting it made sure that nobody got the gunpowder and the guns, and they stayed there until the British sailed away months later. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's mad. That is completely mad, but it also gives you an indication of how important honor, the honor of a word is yes. during this yeah. period and yeah. that, that mentality that if you give your word, it, it's not, <laughs> it, it, you're absolutely going to stick to it. It's a completely yes. different rationale. Um, I, I would give you good odds on the concept that if you did that today, you would not get the, the same outcome. 
but that's oh, absolutely not no but then conversation yeah you know, that's well yeah exactly yeah the other thing i was going to say on top of that is is of course obviously you have to mention that napoleon actually ordered his officers to actually break their parole in britain so um and a num- there are a number of cases where high-ranking officers actually escaped back to europe and uh he employed them straight away interestingly enough he didn't employ them again in the peninsula he, he employed them in russia instead uh i'm not totally sure they actually probably made the right decision in a sense because mm. many of them didn't come back out of russia but at the end of the day you know parole was actually seen as something that was sacrosanct if you took parole that was it uh and the brits were horrified when the when the french started breaking parole yeah interesting i've just been working on the grave of um a guy uh, a naval uh, admiral uh, mm. his, his name is jackson and it seems that he is an unusual instance of a British naval officer breaking parole because he seems to have done a, some things that, that would come straight out of a Sharps novel in terms of sort of running away a couple of times um, and trying to get back across the channel. But it's interesting that Napoleon has a much more kind of fluid concept of yes. of parole and, and whether or not it should yeah. be adhered to. I suppose I, I don't know I, I I do know of Jackson but I, I can't remember the story as such but the only thing I would say is it, I suppose you'd have to confirm that he actually did give his parole because if he didn't give his parole and he was a prisoner of war he had every right to try and escape that is a good point some research needs to be done yes we'll continue that conversation another time <laughs> I suspect um, back to Copenhagen Let's talk about the how long it takes once the once the preparations are in place, once mm-hmm. the order is given to open fire. How long does it take for the Danes to just go? This can't be sustained, and how much damage is done in the process? It was really over about three three nights. Really, um, um, they they tended to the British artillery tended to wait till night time. I think there was also a specific element in this. Uh, you know, this is a psychological bit of you know when you you you're weakest at night time, you want rest, and suddenly you just get shells and cannonballs crashing through, uh, and obviously rockets firing through as well. Um, but it was through the nights they were doing it, right into the early morning, and then they would rest themselves during the day, and then they would start again. Uh, it, it's not 100% that, but it, it was largely overnight they were doing it. But it was the second, third, and fourth, and by the morning of the fifth, uh, when it continued that morning, uh, the locals were basically hounding payment to actually call a halt to it and to actually just give in um so it, it in a sense it had worked um because it had it had done which obviously in other wars it hasn't managed to do is actually get the civilian population to turn around and say to the the army we can't do this anymore you've got to give in yeah um but is copenhagen a wooden city um, at that stage yes uh okay. quite well quite a large part of it is a medieval wooden city um and in fact if you go there now you'll actually find it's a very what i call a european city very uh straight lines crisscrossing etc in much much of it much of that has happened because uh the medieval city burnt a great deal in this period and of course that gave them the perfect opportunity to actually redesign the city um uh so yeah so the 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 plan of the city changes quite dramatically street plan changes quite dramatically after this 
how much does end up being damaged? Do we have a an an estimate in in broad well, terms? They, they, yeah, they, it goes all over the place. It's, I mean, around about a quarter are either damaged or uh, burnt down completely. Uh, oh, wow. But it's you know those estimates can go all over the place. I mean, you you can read estimates of from about fifteen to twenty percent up to forty five percent. I would say around about twenty twenty five is realistic, and it's mostly that medieval quarter. Uh, where the majority of it happens, uh, although other things uh, are also targeted. So, for example, the main, uh, the, the, the highest steeple in the entire uh, city was used as target practice by the Royal Artillery, and it was almost like a game as who's going to bring it down. Uh, uh, unfortunately, that meant that that part of the city also got quite a pounding as well. And in fact, eventually, it does come crashing to the ground. And in fact, even to and every Danish uh, illustration of this bombardment will show you a spire on fire or crashing to the ground. And that is this famous church coming to the ground. What's the church called? Do you know, off the top of my head, I just can't complete it off my head. I'll, I'll have to remember it, and I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. But, no well, like I say, I have been to the church. It has now got a tower rather than the spire, but it does have a picture in there of what it looked like previously. Um, but they didn't rebuild a spire afterwards. It's a it's a long name, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. I, I do apologise. No worries. Um, no doubt our, our Danish listeners may be able to help us out on that. Uh, even though they do make up less than one percent of the listenership, um, so we've talked about the rebuilding process already as yeah. as part of this. What are the terms? Is it quite simply look? Just give us give us your boats, and we will leave. Is is it as simple as that, or is there any kind of debate about well, can we have this, and you know, we'll exchange why and all the rest of it? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it, it was quite complicated, and it was, and Wellesley was very much involved in these these um, discussions. Um, they had to give over the citadel, and the arsenal, etc., and the dockyard over to the British army. So, in fact, British soldiers were marched into those specific spots, but the rest of the city was left to the Danes. Okay, so that was the first thing. Uh, but then, obviously, there was a longer discussion about. Uh, the, the fleet being taken, etc., and what was going to be taken. Um, clearly, the ships were going to be taken, but what other stores and everything else? Well, I mean, it got to the point where at one stage, one of the Danish officers was actually sort of, um, sort of, um, annoying Wellesley, and and supposedly uh, he retorts with something like, "Every single piece will go back, everything, general." everything yeah i seen so he's meaning literally you know the the sort of the fires for warning and the sort of warming the uh sort of um, the clerks in the offices anything at all not just naval stores but anything they could take but it was specifically it was specifically that it would be the military stores that were going private individuals were not under threat and did not lose anything that we know of there are no reports in this case of well in fact obviously not many british troops went in and the few troops who were in there actually treated the locals fully correctly there wasn't a storming or anything like that and therefore it was understood that it private individuals and their belongings are still theirs and it's sacrosanct so it was purely 
military stores that were being taken. How do the locals respond to the Brits when they're inside the walls? Because obviously, you know, you've got all this devastation. You know, a quarter of the city is in ashes or damaged. And you can imagine that, you know, tempers would fray, even if the Brits are sort of confining themselves to the, the military essentials in terms of not only where they're based, but also what they're taking. You can still imagine people sort of shouting insults and starting to throw stones and all the rest of it. Yeah, no, it, it, to be honest, it was more of a stunned silence. I think they were in complete shock at what has happened to the city and what had happened to them after a century of peace. And, you know, they just never saw it coming. Um, and the the majority of the um, sort of conversations you get from soldiers at the time is very much that they were they were treated with respect, but not with love. Which I would I would imagine is probably as much as they were expecting. Yeah, completely. Sorry, can I come back to you? Because I, I thought I'll just I'll just flick through the book while I'm doing it because it was annoying me. I couldn't remember the names of it. It was the Freikirk, which is actually, or in English, the Church of Our Lady, which is the famous church with the very tall steeple that came crashing down. There you go, folks. Answer to your earlier question. Fantastic. Um, this obviously goes back home. I mean, not just, I'm not just talking about the fleet, but the news yep. of what's happened goes back home. Yeah. At that point, it's going to make its way into the press and parliament. You can plan this in secrecy, but now the the news is out there. Yeah. Which inevitably leads to a reaction. So how do press, parliament and public react to the fact that Britain has gone and stolen a fleet from a neutral power by raining fire down on their capital city? Um. I think you can class it as national embarrassment of the greatest scale possible. Um, everybody from the king who had actually sanctioned this really uh, with his arm tied behind his back because Parliament were almost uh, sort, of, the, sort of the government were pushing him to to agree to doing this. And he really didn't want to do it. And, and the result was very much a case of uh, very against what he wanted to happen. Um, yeah, I think... You know, everyone could see uh, that a neutral country had been attacked. Um, and yes, there had been a point behind it, but the whole attacking a neutral really went down badly. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and certainly the cartoonists of the period make it very clear that um as you've said earlier, it was clearly not one of Britain's finest hours. Uh, and, you know, there were very, very many people in Britain who were prepared to publicly uh, declare how dreadful it was that we'd ever even considered doing this. Yeah, that, that doesn't entirely surprise me. And I do need to double back a second and ask mm. something that I should have done. The fleet, there was an order to scuttle the fleet if needs be. Yes. Really, that didn't happen. What went wrong? Well... It seems like Admiral Steen Bill got the message and then didn't pass it on to anybody else. All right. Now, it's a very strange one because I've, when the Prince Regent comes back to Copenhagen after everything has settled down, he basically goes for anybody that had anything to do with uh agreeing to the the armistice and the, the fleet being taken um so payment and all the other officers who signed these these um treaties etc 
are castigated. Some are actually even threatened with death, uh, uh, with a you know, public execution, etc. Um, but Steen Bill somehow managed to worm his way into the Prince Regent before he got back and met him, first of all, and got his side of the story across. And it seems that after that, he couldn't do anything wrong and the Prince Regent wouldn't change his view of him afterwards. So when it then becomes a case of, well, the, Na the Navy didn't actually do it, uh, it do what uh, it was supposed to happen, the evidence would appear to say that Steenbill probably blamed other people for not carrying out the orders or claiming that he never got the orders. Yeah, somewhere along those lines, because clearly he doesn't pass it on to anybody else. But there is evidence that he knew about it. Um, payment certainly says that he knew about it and he, and he, he knew about it, but it was, it was down to the Admiral to deal with it. Um, so. I think basically. Steen Bill doesn't. I, I don't know if you've seen a portrait of Steen Bill. He's not the nicest looking chap I've ever met, or the most. He doesn't look as if he'd be the great, uh, great party man. Let's put it that way. Uh, he looks like um, he would. I think he would sell his own granny by the looks of it. Uh, if he got him, if he got him uh, into the top position, um, and that that probably is true. <laughs> It's probably not far off the truth because in 1801, he certainly actually makes sure that uh, others take the blame for everything that goes wrong there, should we say. And he comes over, it's smelling of roses, and he manages to do that here again. Uh, you were going to say that in 1801, he actually sold his granny. Um, <laughs> I thought that was where you were no, going with that. I haven't discovered that evidence yet. <laughs> well, if anybody's able to shed any light on whether or not Steenbill actually did that, um, I would be interested if only for the comedic value. Um, I, I've got a very dumb question incoming, but before I get to that, I'm just wondering Surely not about, for you. Well, it, it only happens like every single podcast. Um, the This is obviously an embarrassing situation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to match up the timelines in my head in terms of what's happening in Portugal versus what's happening here. Months, um, literally months apart. There's not much in it at all. No, exactly. And I'm wondering to what extent does Napoleon look at this and go, look, the Brits are doing what the hell they like. I'm going to do what the hell I like. Um, is there any sense that Napoleon looks at this and goes, well, <laughs> anything's fair game in Europe now um, and, and uses this as an excuse to legitimize what he does in Portugal? Apologies, because I can't quite remember the dates I, I no the time scale is the other way around the portuguese okay. situation has started earlier um so uh in fact it's quite difficult for napoleon to actually claim that because at the end of the day he's already on on the march towards uh portugal uh when this happens uh i mean the only thing is i mean although we know that the actual portuguese fleet does escape it's not specific that he's there just to actually capture the fleet. He also wants to capture Portugal full stop, yeah? Um, so it's it's caught up in a bigger story there, but certainly as far as the Brits are concerned, it's another fleet that's under threat, and it's already under threat because they're on the march there. Um, so uh, so it, really, it really reinforces the British view that, yes, we've got to save these fleets because he's definitely after them, uh, whereas for Napoleon, I think, 
it was a bit of an afterthought with Portugal, but, you know, but certainly, and, you know, even with Denmark, I think there was as much of an argument that he wanted to bring them into the continental system in both cases as well, to actually to keep, to keep the, you know, the pressure on Britain that they, they couldn't uh, sort of, uh, sort of sell their, their all their wares, should we say, which was going to ruin the, the British economy eventually. Yeah. So there was more, it was more to do with that than the, the other things, because although yes, there is a possibility you could have done some of the fleets, there was nothing specifically planned. You know, the Irish thing is, is a red herring. Okie doke. So that was one question from a position of ignorance. Here is, and I, I even described this as such in the questions that I sent you. Um, the dumbest question I've probably ever put to a guest on this show. What impact does this have on Anglo-Danish relations? If you hadn't worked out the subtext of all of this by now, folks, then um, forgive me, you you need to go back and have another listen, I think. Um, but I, I don't mean that quite in sort of the, the facetious, dumb sense that it comes across. I've seen this as sort of, uh, basically, we, we push the Danes into the arms of Napoleon. You did make the point, though, earlier on that the Danish preferences for neutrality. So yeah. how how do they respond to this? Right. Well, as I said, yeah, I've been saying that literally for the last century, they've been sitting on the fence. Um, this is the moment where they realise that sitting on the fence doesn't work anymore. Uh, it tips them off the fence completely, and the Prince Regent jumps firmly into Napoleon's side. Um, in fact, uh, Denmark becomes his staunchest ally in some ways because in fact he is the last they are the last country to turn against napoleon in 1814 absolutely last country to actually change to come against him um so once they jumped they didn't want to mess around anymore they just stuck with him um but yeah you're right i mean it's, it's not a dumb question in a sense but i mean clearly for denmark it was huge uh I think the only way you can put it is you've got to you've got to think of it as somebody at that you know how important the Royal Navy was to us at that time, and if somebody had literally come and taken the Royal Navy off us, it would have it would it, it to the Danes it was just the same, it was you know it was something that was something so fundamental to the to the psyche of them that it was incomprehensible that we didn't have it, you know. Um, but and I, and I, I think you know I, I do think that it, you have to look at it and that's a level. But certainly, as soon as it happened, um, the French force that was on the border was invited to help them. Uh, it sort of came into Zealand, uh, and that's how you also end up with Spanish troops on Zealand who end up going back to Spain in a little while's time, etc. So all of that gets involved as well. But um, yeah, it's it's. Clearly, there's only one way for them to go at this stage. I mean, they are now firmly against Britain and will be for the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, genuinely not all of that surprising. No. Um, if folks want to go and do a bit of reading about a similar-ish, a time when the shoe is sort of on the other foot, albeit from the Dutch, go and read about the Anglo-Dutch Wars in yes. the 1670s i want to say when mm. the dutch are incredibly successful at humiliating the brits at sea including sailing up the thames and burning the royal flagship um, yeah. as it sits yeah. at dock so yeah. um you know 
it's it's hugely humiliating yeah for the danes which leads us to the 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 trickiest question perhaps of mm-hmm. the lot and the one to which there is no right or wrong answer i guess um was it the right move because from a purely machiavellian standpoint i would just about say yes it was mm-hmm. um but it but that's that's ultra Machiavellian and you've yeah. got to think about sort of the macro geopolitical yeah. ramifications. So what's your read on this? Was it the right decision ultimately? Um, I, I think I'm somewhere in the same camp as you really. I um, can see all of the reasons not to do anything and it shouldn't have happened. And, you know, that we were breaking all sorts of conventions and sort of, you know, of society at that time, but unfortunately wartime, often makes you make decisions that in fact you really don't want to have to make uh but in regard to you winning the war are actually quite important and you have to sometimes go against what your natural grain would be uh and i've mentioned the winston churchill thing i don't think winston churchill i don't think he ever he, he never actually uh voiced any form of regret i don't think it for for uh sinking the uh the french fleet and i can understand that because having made the decision i think you've just got to basically take it on the chin when you know you're going to get uh quite a lot of even your own people questioning what you've done um but ultimately i'm not sure how many other options the british had they clearly didn't know what the future held they didn't know that 1812 was going to happen and change the entire picture in europe um they could only see uh, a, a very dominant france on the on the continent who now was actually uh in league with all of the other major powers in europe uh and the only people in their way as far as they could see was actually britain and its navy and it 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 was i think pretty obvious that the next stage for for napoleon if he hadn't got involved in other wars in europe was to try to actually defeat britain's dominance at sea uh and that for the british was very scary indeed um because we also have to bear in mind that in 1807 we have still got an army who has not proved itself to be particularly good at any time in the recent past. It had an awful lot of disasters. Indeed, it has. Um, before people start going, oh, but Wellesley, you know, this. remember people, this is Wellesley's first European engagement. Yeah. He is not Wellington. Um, that is all to come in the future. And frankly, I would advance the argument that it's Wellington that salvages much of the reputation of the British army during yes. the course of the Napoleonic Wars, which without that, a few exceptions to be noted. Um, but those exceptions aside, it, it's just generally really very poor. Yeah. Um, okay, so two quick ones to, to end on. Okay. Um, how much can we see today? I mean, folks may not be aware that you are a respected um, battlefield guide, uh, folks, if you want to be led by one of the best and most knowledgeable people about certainly Waterloo, but also of the Peninsula War, 
go get in contact with Gareth and and discuss fees and all the rest of it. Um, but with that in mind, how much of the um, the 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 area over which this is fought is visible today? Because the the Danes have done a lot of reclamation of land, from what I understand, and inevitably these expand. So. Yeah, they, they have. I mean, there's a lot of reclamation to the harbour, but actually, surprisingly, a large amount of what we're talking about in both 1801 and 1807 is still there. Um, the northern half of the, the defences is largely gone, but the southern half is virtually still there as it was. Um, you can actually walk along them uh, today and see exactly how it was with the wet ditch and, and the defences behind it. Uh, the northern side, actually, you can follow the line of it because if you go in the parks, which is on that side now, uh, there is a zigzag uh, stream running through it, which just happens to be the old wet line of the, the ditch. Uh, so you can actually exactly see where the wall was. Uh, and then within it, the citadel still there. The arsenal is a very good visit. Um, the arsenal has got the... Um, a huge artillery sort of uh, number of pieces there, in, including the best kept set of Royal Horse Artillery guns that I have ever seen in immaculate 1813 condition, never repainted, never redone anything with. They are exactly the same as they were, and the Danes just let you walk all over them and sort of open the boxes and have a look inside and everything else. It's all perfect. Um, so if you ever get there, have a look at that. There's obviously other stuff regarding uh, 1801 as well, because obviously you've got the some of the naval dockyard is still there. You can obviously go out into the harbour and you've got the sort of uh, the uh, Crown Battery, etc. So there is quite a lot that is still there uh, and you get a real feel for it in Copenhagen. It's a, it's a lovely city and it's worth doing. Uh, the other thing you can actually do is obviously Kronborg, which is which is involved in this as well, up on the coast is still there. And Frederiksvik is very much worth a visit as well if you ever had the chance, uh, because the gunpowder factory is still there. And although it, it got updated in a little bit in the Victorian period, the black powder factory is still there and they will actually show you it working, etc. So it's a really good little visit as well. I have done a group tour around uh the actual sort of Copenhagen and the rest of, and Zealand. And it went extremely well. There's a lot to find. There you go, folks. Um, consider consider that. Um, I'm very tempted by what you've just said. Um, I shall go and have a little look at the finances and then see um, see what can be done in that yeah. score. Because... You just... Sorry, I was only going to say, you just need to be very careful because unfortunately, one thing about Copenhagen is not the cheapest place in the world. Yes, I have heard that rumour. Um, but there you go, folks. There's something to um, at least salivate over in terms of the prospect of a, a guided tour by Gareth through Copenhagen. Um, no doubt there will be some good wine involved as well. Um, so one <laughs> final question. Um, how do the Danes remember this today? Because uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that this might be regarded by them as a war crime case could be made for that um certainly plenty of reason for resentment but it was 200 years ago and a lot has happened since does this even get remembered um 
yes and no. Um, I was quite surprised. Uh, there is some knowledge of the the fleet being dis- uh, taken and the the fire in the city and the sort of everything else. Um, but like a lot of countries these days, um, the teaching of history, should we say, of their of their own history, is not always as great as it should be uh, and i'll go no further than getting on that sort of bandwagon because i'll open a huge can of worms there uh, but i have met a lot of danes who you just chat to over there and they will know a little bit about the the, the great fire they'll know possibly about the fleet being stolen if it, whatever uh as they they see it but it also gets confused and conflated with 1801 and nelson coming and having a battle there and a number of people danes i spoke to were telling me that in fact uh nelson is actually the man who they actually blame for stealing the fleet he's dead exactly so uh but the two things have become confused and conflated Uh, and i i think unfortunately that's true. I'm not, that's not true of every Dane. Obviously, there are, there are a number of Danes that do know uh, the history quite well. Um, but the g- general man and lady on the street hasn't got a huge understanding of it. And they do tend to get sort of all brought together a bit yeah, and, and confused. Ghost sailed into the little harbour of Copenhagen, <laughs> unhitched them all single handedly, tied them to the back of HMS Victory and sailed them home. The story Absolutely. of Copenhagen that you never thought you knew. Um, it's um, uh, it's, a, it's a facetious point, quite frankly, on which to end. Um, Gareth, thank you for having the patience to stick with a two-hour mm. recording. You're most welcome, um, folks. GarethGloverCollection.com, where you'll find the assorted, well, the, the 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 lengthy list of I think it was 129. You said. 118 um, at the moment. 118 apologies. I'm over. It'll be 129 next year. Good to good to hear. Um, but folks, we jest. The the rate at which this guy produces books that you need on your shelf is sickening, quite frankly, to those of us who look on with envy. Um, but it's done through exceptionally hard work. Um, go and start filling up your bookcases. Um, plenty of them are available um, at Pen and Sword, where you will find um gareth's uh, book on the two battles of copenhagen gareth of course will be back to talk about first copenhagen in due course while you're there you may find that the code podcast 10 helps you to acquire even more titles because if you're saving 10 percent, then surely that's an indication that you need to buy more to make up for that saving you can see that i am not good for your bank balance people um but go and avail yourself have um have yourself a merry early christmas why not um i'm sure your other halves will thank me not at all for encouraging you to spend excessive amounts of money but seriously folks there are some great books to be enjoyed by gareth go and get uh get your hands on them i particularly recommend waterloo myth versus reality if you're only looking for one um gareth may disagree in terms of what his best title is anything that you particularly think people should acquire uh, well, no, you've you've mentioned the main ones. To be fair, I mean, I it's I will say it's, it's myth and reality. Sorry, I'll just bench that one. Yeah. Uh, no, no, that's right. It's just just it's just if they type that in, they they, they might get something else if they put verses in. 
Um, I might need to update my bibliographies actually because I might have put that in wrong. Anyway, oh right, okay. Um, and on top of that, I mean, obviously, my book on the Mediterranean, which is I, I've, it's it's been named as this, the Forgotten War against Napoleon, but it, it's it, the the point is that it, it's only known for little bits and pieces and that there is a complete campaign going on there the entire war and that they're interlinked and just mentioning that so that's that's the three books that actually cover that sort of stuff and then obviously memoirs i mean there's dozens of them that i could mention because i mean there's and i will say the latest is always my favorite so you know um just coming around the corner now we have um a, a commissary in two volumes coming up now topper carey who writes uh as i was telling zach earlier before we started really is amazing because he actually it's the first time i've actually had somebody that was a commissary that actually tells me what he actually did as a job rather than all his womanizing and his you know sort of chasing sort of uh chasing a bit of skirt and sort of uh and food and, and drink and all the rest of it uh but actually gives a proper understanding of what for the first time I've ever got is a, is what a commissary actually did in life. And it sounds a little bit boring, but actually it's not. It actually is quite interesting story there. Um, but so whatever's next on the list is always my my favourite. Having just mentioned the Mediterranean book, which I remember reading um, quite some time ago and really enjoying, it has occurred to me there are about 15 podcast episodes to be done based around that book. So you may have made a rod for your own back there. Um, but that is a point on which to end. Gareth, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to seeing you again for Copenhagen One in the not too distant future. You're welcome. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, please remember to leave a review. It's the most powerful thing you can do to help the show reach a wider audience on our quest for one million downloads. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducardo, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Milinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Sam Moore, <coughs> Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, and Jason Morn. And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, J.C. Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Ned Campbell, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcombe, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.